Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. Before we begin, just a reminder, uh, our episodes are now available on Cointelegraph. They're being distributed through Cointelegraph magazine. Uh, so you can check out uh, this podcast, other episodes, and other deep explorations of blockchain trends on Cointelegraph magazine at cointelegraph.com slash magazine. Quick disclaimer before we begin. Nothing we say here is investment advice. You can read our show notes for our complete disclaimers. And uh, I'm really excited today to be joined by uh, Joe DeTomaso. Joe, it's so great to, uh, to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, so Joe is a uh, research analyst at CMS. I missed that line in my notes. But uh, Joe, it's great to have you on. And so let's get right into it. And so, you know, can you tell us a bit uh, about your background and, you know, kind of how you discovered crypto? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been quite a while now. Like, I guess it kind of sounds as cliche as saying like going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. But I tell everybody like I'm pretty young by age, uh, but pretty old in crypto years. So I got into this stuff all the way back in 2011. Kind of similar to the story that Hassan Basari told on his podcast. Like, I was in high school. Some kid was just talking about some online marketplace. You could buy drugs with magic internet money, um, and I. I mean, frankly, I thought he was full of shit. Um, so dug in a little bit, and I guess the rest was kind of history. So I, I got into the stuff. Bitcoin was like $2.34, something like that, um, fall of 2011. Uh, I was really interested in like building computers and things like that. So I had taken a stab at mining a little bit. And at that time, it was already like pretty hard. You had to have some crazy GPUs, a ton of them. Um, it was just hard to do. So I backed off that for a bit. I was kind of just buying Bitcoins. Um, and then I guess like 2013, 2014, Charlie Lee had posted on Bitcoin Talk Forum about Litecoin. And that was kind of like one of the very first altcoins. There was like Feathercoin, Peercoin, uh, Namecoin, these really early ones you trade on BTCE. Um, but long story short, I ended up having like a second house's worth of power installed at my parents' home in New Jersey. So I had my own fuse box. I forget like the amps and wattage, but I had something like 200 GPUs ripping through script coins. Um, I was doing a little bit of profit switching. So it was mainly Litecoin, a little bit of Vertcoin, um, and then Doggycoin came to the scene. And they did merge mining with Litecoin. So I was mining a bunch of Litecoin, a bunch of Doggy. Uh, that was kind of the early years, I guess. ASICs hit the scene. Um, I played a little bit in that, and it just turned into the same arms race we see with Bitcoin today. So I had some of the original KNC Titan miners. I'm actually running a few of them still at home uh, today. My parents know how to reset and maintain them. It's amazing. And um, yeah, that was kind of awesome. awesome. Uh, wrapped up. I wrapped up mining, I think, kind of late 2014. Um, and then it was just all trading from then on. And so, you know, you went to, you went to college. And so, you know, were you still involved in crypto when you were at college and then you, you left and you actually didn't go right into crypto, but you know, you kind of did short, shortly after going, going to Falcon X. So can you talk, you know, a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. So I actually ended up not going to college. Um, I was just full-time mining Litecoin. Uh, and then when I wrapped that up, I had gone back. So I did a little bit of time in traditional finance uh, after college, I was trading international ETFs up in Greenwich, Connecticut. And I guess it was like late 2018, 2019. I was kind of asking myself, like, what am I doing? I'm living this dual life still, uh, so to speak. So it was like trading ETFs by day, trading futures on OKCoin at night. Um, and at that point, I felt it was kind of time to like go get involved a little bit more and uh, be a part of the community, if you will. Uh, so that's how I was just on angel list looking for crypto startups. Uh, Falcon X had popped up. Um, I mean, the team over there is phenomenal. Uh, for people who don't know, Falcon X functions as a digital assets brokerage. So aiming to offer kind of the full suite you would see in the traditional world, lending, credit, spot trading, things like that. Um, and over there, I was helping to head up the OTC desk for US hours. And so... Yeah. So what made you then decide to, uh, you know, make that switch and, and come over to CMS? And can you tell us a bit about about the firm? I mean, I think everybody knows the CMS Twitter account, which is the best the best Twitter account in the space, um, you know, if, if I have to say. But, you know, there's a there's a company behind that. There's a there's a prop fund behind it. Right. So we'd love to kind of hear more. Yeah. So, I mean, 
I left Falcon X like right in the heat of DeFi summer. It was like two days before YFI launched. Balancer, I think, had just kicked off liquidity mining. Compound had just launched their token. Things were going kind of crazy. I think Compound got up to like 270 bucks, and everyone was like, all right, what's going on here? Um, so at that point, it was just like too much to manage between the personal account and Falcon X. And frankly, when I left Falcon X, I had absolutely no intention of going to work again. I was like, this is it. I'm just going to manage my own funds, do my own thing. Um, and I kind of just happened to stumble upon Dan and Bobby by chance. Uh, Rob or Bobby Payone uh, from Proof of Talent had posted a job ad to Twitter, actually. And I was combing that every day for DeFi stuff. It was something along the lines of, I've got a great opening for an analyst position for a fund in Boston and New York. Um, and I was like, all right, holy shit. Like the only fund I know that's in Boston and New York is CMS. Um, and I would love to work with those guys. So I jumped on that right away. Um, been here ever since. I guess it's been about a year now. Feels like time's kind of teleported. A year. Yeah. I mean, a, a year in crypto is a long time too. I mean, you've had many years. I mean, you're, you've been in this space for a decade, which is pretty crazy. But so can you kind of tell us a bit more about, about CMS, you know, the background on the fund, you know, how it got started, but, but what CMS is really doing? What are the types of strategies that the firm is using? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, kind of like you had mentioned, it started out basically core prop fund. Um, same stuff Dan was kind of doing over at Circle trading a lot of the futures curve against Bitcoin, smaller stuff, um, and kind of quickly ramped up. I mean, those guys really timed things very well around the next bull cycle, if you will. Um, so at this point, we function kind of on a hybrid model. I would say we're very close to maybe a 50-50 capital split between actively traded stuff and then venture-style investments. And on the actively traded side, we're out in the market, basically everywhere you could imagine both on centralized exchanges and decentralized exchanges. We do a ton of liquidity provision. We have some automated strategies. Uh, we trade a lot of the futures curve against most of our portfolio. And then on the venture side, a lot of what we try to invest in is primarily on the application layer. Um, and I say that because we aim to invest in things we see ourselves using or becoming customers of eventually. So things that kind of fall in line there, lending protocols, DEXs, money markets, um, stuff that we all kind of know from, I guess, our trading desk era um, and things that we feel we can really kind of like dig in and provide useful feedback to both the team and the community there. So that's kind of like our bread and butter at CMS. And so on the venture side, are you primarily investing early stage in the application layer? Are you guys trying to be, you know, one of the first pieces of capital in or are you also investing in liquid tokens and taking long-term positions? Yeah. So, I mean, we kind of go across the board there. Um, I think obviously earlier is the better just in terms of the return on capital. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of projects you kind of just want to be a part of. Uh, some of these more blue chip names or things that have been around for a little while, sometimes they'll be looking to raise money out of their treasury and we'll do things like that. Sometimes they're looking for liquidity providers and we're happy to jump in there. Um, we kind of jump in all across the lifespan of, I guess, the investment cycle, for lack of a better term. Um, and we try to kind of be nimble around that. I mean, there's nothing we'll really say no to as long as it's something that we think we can kind of provide value on. And so what is the time horizon on some of these, you know, more venture bets, right? I mean, you know, obviously there's probably on some of those earlier stage, you know, deals there, there there's some level of lockups that are probably, you know, being forced, right? You know, but have you guys actually exited any venture type bets yet? You know, I mean, the, the market has is, is certainly moved a lot, right? So, you know, when do you guys, you know, how do you guys think about, you know, exiting a position? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think our goal is to always try to kind of avoid smashing any tokens into the market too early. I mean, it's not our game to kind of get into things and look for our exit as soon as we can. Um, but at the same time, we function kind of very amorphously between our active book and our venture book. So a lot of the time, if we're selling things, I mean, we try to limit it just to kind of getting back our initial capital if we can. Um, and other times, I mean, we obviously try to take kind of a broad macro approach to the way that we're investing. So we like to stick with things that we kind of see becoming essential building blocks of whatever ecosystem we're looking at. And so, you know, your your job at CMS is a research analyst. And so can you kind of, you know, speak to us about what 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 that means and what your day to day looks, you know, looks like as a research analyst? 
Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think at CMS, we have a pretty flat structure there. Uh, we all kind of have public facing titles. Um, but internally, I think everyone kind of functions pretty horizontally uh, across the board. So a lot of my job, I think, would mimic what you would see out of a typical investment portfolio manager. Um, so things kind of like taking pitch calls, evaluating deal flow, doing diligence on the platform. Um, and the research side kind of comes in on more of the technical aspect. So I think at CMS, um, when I had joined, we were really looking for somebody that could thumb through the technical side of things, um, just go through white papers, understand how these things fit in with each other, um, stuff like that. Um, focusing on the way the tokens are issued, what the unlocks look like, just kind of digging into more of the technical aspects on the research side, um, and then kind of just maintaining and staying up to date with how our portfolio looks day to day. And, and so, you know, on the technical side, and, you know, you mentioned supply schedule, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this concept of a bullish unlock that some people <laughs> in this space are talking about, right? You know, the fact that, you know, somehow you have an asset where only 1% of the supply is liquid, and yet when 20% more unlocks, the price has gone up. And so, you know, I'm curious as to how you guys think through supply schedules, investing, and I guess token economics in that regard. Uh, and, and how that impacts your decision making. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think for a lot of these projects, you see typically some type of cliff and then maybe some type of linear investing afterwards. Um, but I guess like the way that we look at it, uh, we're not too concerned about the unlocks in general. Um, you obviously have a pretty broad set of investors. A lot of them kind of look to recoup capital. A lot of these coins enter the market at once. Um, and from our perspective, it's not always a bad thing, right? I mean, you have a lot of people that watch these things and either don't have access to the tokens or the exchanges are extremely illiquid. And maybe there is some type of initial flush on these tokens. They kind of get out into the market and things come down. Um, and that's fine. That's par for the course. Um, I think we kind of think about it as just it, it becomes more distributed at that point. More people can participate. Things really start to take off. More people are getting their hands dirty playing with these things. Um, so we kind of lean into that. I mean, Solana was a big one. There was kind of, I, I don't know if you call it thud, but a lot of concern in the market about a huge unlock uh, back over the winter, man. I think it might have been January. I can't even remember at this point. Um, but for us, I mean, we were we were sitting there looking to buy more um, the whole time. It wasn't really something we were concerned about. So I don't know. I don't think it's really a myth that maybe you should be scared of unlocks, but it's not really something that we shy away from here. And so let's go like, you know, let's dive straight into the market. And, you know, I guess the talk of today is, you know, these forked assets, these old, you know, you know, your, your Ethereum classic. And, you know, I know you actually, we had this chat earlier, you know, you know, you, you, you look at Ethereum as being the fork, right. And, you know, not ETC um, and, and Bitcoin cash, right. And, you know, these, these assets moved like crazy. I think Ethereum classic is, you know, seen like an a thousand percent increase in trading activity today. It's up you know, 40, 50%, you know, BCH is also moving. You know, I'm curious as to your thoughts on what's going on there, uh, you know, why these things are likely moving and, you know, does this mean anything for the rest of the market? Yeah, no, I mean, I think with I like Bitcoin Cash, um, Ethereum Classic, these are a lot of tokens that retail platforms offer. So you have places like PayPal offering Bitcoin Cash. You can buy a lot of them on Robinhood at this point. Um, and I think generally a lot of that is retail driven. I think that's kind of what we're seeing now. A lot of these platforms that retail has access to, they're able to come in, hey, Bitcoin Cash is right there. It's a lot cheaper than Bitcoin. Um, and that kind of drives the market on those tokens a lot. Um, I mean, that's not to say that these things have value in their own respect, um, but I think it's definitely a different type of investor or trader, if you will, um, that's kind of driving those tokens at this point. I think from the institutional side, it's just a lot more of a narrative play, right? I mean, we're in the phase of this market cycle where it's it's up only uh, for the most part. So you really kind of just want to pay attention to who's buying what um, and get in as best you can before it really starts to take off. And so how do you think and, and how do you guys kind of play these retail narratives, right? I mean, you know, you look at, for example, you know, Cardano, Cardano and you look at Theta and you look at some of these other assets that are clearly driven by YouTube uh, and by TikTok and by some of these, you know, these other social media platforms where, you know, us being, you know, deep in the crypto industry, we laugh at this, right? And we're like, what the hell is going on here, right? And so does, does CMS trade around those narratives? You know, how do you guys 
look at the retail market or is it something that you're kind of broadly ignoring? Yeah, no, I mean, so we don't get too far into it kind of like I, I know some people track like algorithms on Twitter. You can run this stuff on YouTube, TikTok, and you can kind of take cues that way. Um, I think for us, it's kind of just more being conscious of the fact. Um, I think maybe like two or three months ago, Arthur Hayes actually wrote a pretty good piece about how the equities market has really just become this narrative-driven marketplace at this point. Um, and it's not something you should ignore, right? I mean, the trade is just as valid as something that you can put fundamental analysis to. Uh, I think it's more just a matter of being conscious of that um, and kind of keeping your head on within the trade, knowing that, hey, this thing's not going to prop up forever. Um, you're paying attention to the channels that it's coming through. Uh, kind of like you'd mentioned earlier, we're very active on Twitter. We try to get out in the social media and see what's really being talked about there and kind of pay attention to, I mean, you have the Google Trends, things like that. I mean, I think everybody here has been in the space for probably six to seven years at a minimum. Um, so we're pretty uh, cognizant of how these things sort of play out. Um, and it's, again, just more a matter of being conscious that it's happening than really just building this core fundamental thesis about like, hey, we're going to go out and buy a ton of doggy coin today uh, just because everything's going up. So, yeah, I mean, speaking of, of Doge or, you know, doggy, as you like to call it, you know, what do you think of this, this movement, the 69 cent Doge that we saw overnight? <laughs> you know, you know, where are we at? Are we, is Doge going to hit a dollar? Uh, and and what what does that mean for the rest of the market? Yeah, no, I mean it's it's crazy, man. Um, it's gone very quickly from this meme, you know, like one dollars program. That I love just hitting that on repeat. But it, like again, it's the narrative play. Um, and I think for I'll call it Doge, like you. Um, I think for Doge, it's one that's like very easily in the spotlight too, right? Everybody knows the Shiba Inu. They see it. Oh, that that's Doggy Coin. Um, I think it's just one that people are very familiar with and they're kind of like, hey, this thing is super cheap. A lot of the people buying this are totally unconscious of the inflation behind it, how many tokens are in circulation, if it actually does anything. Um, I watched a YouTube channel this morning that was saying doggy coin is exactly the same as Ethereum. Um, so it, it, I don't know how much it goes on, um, but I definitely do think it's an indicator of where we kind of are in this market cycle. Uh, things are getting frothy. It's great to play in, um, and we're happy to do so as well. But I think, again, like I'm, I'm on repeat here, uh, but being conscious of the fact, I mean, this doesn't last forever. It's, it's fun to play with while it's here, um, but we'll see how things go. Maybe after a dollar, we'll come down. Yeah. And so, you know, my question is what happens when Dogecoin corrects, right? I mean, I think, you know, being realistic at some point, it's going to correct where that is, you know, is up for debate, obviously, but can Dogecoin bring crypto down with it? Or is it disconnected at this point because it's so mainstream and retail driven? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's obviously a very large market sector at this point, just kind of the retail players in the space, the ones that are on Robinhood, uh, they're buying things on PayPal, they've got their retail Coinbase account. Um, I think it's one of those things that maybe it kind of leaves a lot of people with a bad taste in their mouth. Um, I guess somewhat similar to people that were buying a lot of the ICOs and things like that in 2017. Um, that being said, I think the institutional presence at this point is a lot stronger than it was in the past. I mean, it's been pretty obvious over the headlines we've seen recently and some of the recent news stories. Um, I would have a hard time thinking it'll be doggy coin alone that brings things down. Uh, but I could certainly see a lot of these retail driven tokens kind of taking a breather um, as a cue from doggy. And so, you know, kind of speaking about the institutional landscape, right? I mean, obviously, you've been in this market for a very long time. You're, you're in this market before any institutions were here, right? And, you know, they've trickled in since, you know, 2014, 2015, you know, with some of the Chicago prop shops, you know, more market making and doing things like that. But we've started to see real large scale institutions, you know, whether it be endowments or pensions allocating or large traditional hedge funds. And I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, your thoughts on, on what that landscape looks like today if it's got further room to grow, how much these guys are actually playing in altcoin markets versus Bitcoin? Because I, you know, before I think it was just Bitcoin, and now I think it's expanded. But I'm curious as to your thoughts and, you know, how much those institutions are actually driving the altcoin rally versus, you know, being retail. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think kind of similar to Doggy Coin, like institutions were a meme for a while too, right? Uh, you had Bitcoin trading at double digits. I mean, even when we were at triple digits, it was like institutions are coming, institutions are coming. 
And we really didn't start seeing that until maybe late 2019 and, and really into 2020 and 2021 here. Uh, and that being said, I mean, as far as that goes, I think we're in a very early stage of that. Um, some of, I don't know if risky is the right word, I should say bold. Um, bolder players in the market are definitely taking a heavy look at it. And I think as we start to see a lot of banks come in and hedge funds, things of that nature, um, really the massive effect we see there is kind of just like a dulling of volatility, right? A lot of these guys are looking to arbitrage the futures curve. They're kind of trying to flatten out funding rates, um, things like that. So, I mean, for Bitcoin and some of these larger coins, I have a very hard time thinking that we see these insane 70 or 80% drops. Um, And by larger coins, I mean things like Ethereum, um, just things that have been around for a while and withstood the test of time to some point. I don't think that those are going to get hit as hard. Um, But I do think we might see kind of the same decimation, I guess, um, in a lot of the alt space. And so... How do you think about that in terms of allocation, right? So, you know, entering positions now from a venture point of view, which is 50% of what you're doing, right? Are you now more risk averse given how frothy the market is? Has that changed your perception or are you just allocating, believing that, you know, you know, hey, even if we have a bear market, you know, the bull market will be back in full force. And, you know, if I'm investing in something now, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, no, I mean, I think we take a lot of our cues um, as far as how we place our investments off of our actively traded side. Um, So you see it in the market. I mean, there are a lot of altcoins that are at prices I don't think people ever would have imagined right now. Um, And to that same point, on the venture side, you have to be conscious of that too, right? Valuations are skyrocketing. Time to close deals is, is pinching. I mean, some of these things you talk to a team and two days later, the round is closed. Um, So we try to take our time and think through our investments. um, But at the same time, you have to kind of act quickly. I think 2020, early 2021, we were a lot more willing to kind of go out and take a chance on something. Maybe we didn't fully see how it fit the picture, or maybe it was a lot earlier than we would have liked. Um, At this point, I I see us passing on a lot more deals than we would have previously. And I think that's really just based on what we're seeing kind of in the open market. I mean, how do you even do due diligence on some of these deals, right? I mean, you know, in two days, it's very difficult to do due diligence. And it's hard to do a technical deep dive into these things and, you know, all sorts of different stuff. I mean, it feels like for me, it's like the second one institution goes into something, that's just like this person gives it its vote of confidence Then others that like to co-invest that institution are kind of tacking on. I mean, do you feel like you're doing a little bit of that tacking or do you feel like you're able to do complete due diligence on some of these assets? Yeah, I mean... It's a 24-hour job, right? I mean, it, the market's open 24 hours a day, and I think that kind of lends itself over to the venture side too. So it's like a lot of the time when we talk to projects, we've either heard about them before or we've gotten some kind of intro. So we do have a little bit of information prior to the conversation that we're able to diligence. Um, and after the convo, it's kind of just a sprint. Um, so we're kind of afforded the flexibility at CMS where we don't have outside capital. So we don't really have these LP checkoffs or people that we have to kind of ask, like, hey, is this okay? Um, it's a lot of like, we're going off our gut from how long we've been in the market and we're diligencing things as much as possible. Um, I'm speed reading white papers sometimes. I'm trying to hash it out to the team so they can understand it too. Um, but sometimes, kind of like you said, it's like you have an anchor team already on this investment. Um, And you take your cue off of that, right? You have a lot of these larger funds where the vote of confidence is strong. um, And maybe you're able to be a little bit more relaxed on things that you might typically look into because of that. So it affords you some maneuverability, um, but we do try to dig in as much as we can. But it's a lot of a speed game as much as it is an understanding game. And in terms of the flow that you guys are seeing now, I mean, there's so much DeFi flow. I'm sure you guys are seeing it, right? I mean, how much of this stuff just looks like the same deal over and over again versus how much of what you're seeing is now novel? Man, so like I think with a lot of the newer layer ones, so things like Solana, things like Polkadot, um, you encounter a lot more original stuff. Um, and that goes, I mean, you have DEXs on Ethereum, but maybe not so much DEXs on Polkadot. Um, so you're able to give it a little bit more originality uh, or at least credit for what they're doing. I think at this point, we're seeing a lot of the same thing. I mean, DEXs are the easiest one. It's a lot of, hey, we're launching a DEX on Polkadot. Hey, we're launching a DEX on Solana. And you're like, okay, well, you know, what does it do differently? And some people 
maybe it's a buy and burn mechanic on the token. Maybe it's front running protection. I mean, there are interesting things that you can kind of add onto these platforms that you see a lot of, but you do see a lot of kind of copy pasta, if you will. Um, and we try to kind of veer away to that or from that to some extent. And so let's kind of dive into the biggest L1, which is Ethereum. And, you know, Ethereum has been absolutely crushing it, you know, hitting, you know, hitting new all-time highs. And so what do you think is is the driving force behind, you know, ETH? I mean, ETH was very static for a while. You know, everybody was talking about, you know, gas fees being ex- exceptionally high and, you know, now moving to Binance Smart Chain, you know, on this, this, the CDFI side. And, you know, we'll talk about that. Um, and, you know, moving to Solana. And now all of a sudden ETH is kind of, you know, risen from its slumber. So I'm curious as to why you think that that's happening now uh, and, and what impact you think that's going to have on the rest of the market. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's taken a very similar path to the way that Bitcoin caught some traction. Um, you get to a certain point where things just get too big to ignore. Um, and I think kind of similar to the way that we were seeing the spot markets just relentlessly bid up in Bitcoin over the winter. Uh, I think Avi, Avi from uh, Block Tower had written a post about this too, but you're kind of seeing the same thing in the Ethereum market um, recently. Uh, there's a legitimate spot bid out in the market for this stuff, um, and, and it's real buying happening. Um, I think at this point too, you start to compare a lot of DeFi to what you see in the traditional world. Uh, interest rates are just obliterated in traditional finance. In Ethereum, you can go out and lend stable coins at 10%. Um, at a certain point, this stuff becomes too legitimate to ignore. Um, and people that are seeking returns, I mean, it's right in front of them. It's something that you you just have to pay attention to. Um, I mean, for me, outside of trading this stuff, I actually did not own a single Ethereum until I think the March of last year. So, I mean, even for me, who's been around in the space for a while, that was a I good largely, time to buy ETH. Yeah, I largely ignored it, though. <laughs> right? I mean, the biggest thing you saw going on there was Crypto Kitties, and you're like, "What is this?" Uh, people are selling these internet images for hundreds of thousands of dollars and it almost seems like a joke Um, but as the use cases come to the market as more money enters the market these things just really legitimize themselves and everyone has to start paying attention i uh so i had uh an exceptional amount of eth that i bought in 2018 at a 750 cost basis and I looked like a complete idiot for a very long period of time with that uh position i was i was underwater in march in March 2018, when it went down to, to 2020, when it went down to like $94, $97 or whatever, you know, I was down, you know, 80, 90% of my position. You know, I was like thinking about doubling down and I did not double down, unfortunately. Uh, but that was a good time to buy. I put all my money in Bitcoin, so I'm up. Uh, I'm up, you know, 20x <laughs> on that, but I'm not up the 30x that I, 35x that I would have been on on, on ETH. Dude, I had my finger on the buy button for the original ethereum pre-sale um that was pretty much going off on bitcoin talk forum and at the time bitcoin had come down from its high of 1100 i think we were all the way down in like the two or three hundreds um and that bear market was brutal uh that was scarier than i think any drop that we've seen in any of this stuff just because we were at this point that it was like is it still gonna die i mean people didn't know if it was actually gonna last um and for me i was like okay I'm either going to buy, I forget what it was. I think it was two bit or no, 2000 Ethereum for like one Bitcoin or something crazy like that. Um, And I was like, all right, I'm just going to stick to my guns and hold Bitcoin. And I mean, it's worked fine. Do I wish I had bought some? Yeah. In hindsight, of course. Um, But I think luckily (laughs) for us, there's opportunity all over the place still in this market. And so, you know, speaking of Ethereum, you know, we're, we're now seeing a lot of new L1s, you know, you know, come to market, right? I mean, there was a lot of, you know, L1s that had ICOs, uh, you know, back in 2017. A lot of them are, you know, I would say flops like EOS. Um, but, you know, we're now seeing the rise of, you know, some of those 2017, 2018 coins, uh, but also some newer, uh, you know, some newer assets like Solana. And so I'm curious as to your thoughts on this, this layer one race and whether or not you think it is a race, if it's winner take all, uh, or if you're envisioning a multi-chain future and, and, you know, where is kind of CMS, uh, you know, placing its bets in that regard? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think kind of just like circling back to the way that we invest here, 
Um, we sit behind a pretty broad macro thesis that the multi-chain universe is real. Um, and we kind of look to invest accordingly along that idea. So I think it wasn't very clear probably up until 2018, if, if you're giving it a little bit more credit than it's worth, um, that a lot of these things would kind of act in tandem. I think when Ethereum first came out, it was this massive battle between Bitcoiners and Ethereum holders like, oh, Bitcoin, or I'm sorry, Ethereum is the next great thing. You can do these smart contracts. Bitcoin is done. It was a lot more kind of like head to head, this or that. Um, I think now with a lot of these L1s, you see things kind of filling the void where others aren't. So in the case of Solana, I mean, their claim to fame is their transaction speed and the throughput on their chain. Uh, and it's legitimate. And it lets you open the door to a lot of things in the traditional world that haven't really existed in, I guess, DeFi to this point. So things like high frequency trading, some legitimate centralized limit order books, stuff of that nature. And I mean, that's not to say Ethereum won't do it eventually. Um, but right now there is some demand for that stuff and Solana's filled that void very nicely. So you start to see things acting in tandem, right? I mean, you can go trade on Solana and bridge your stuff back to ETH and stake it up for some great yield in Wired or Alchemix or things like that. Um, and they work together and there's nothing wrong with that. And I kind of on the same regard, we'd been missing something that really ties it all together at once, right? You have these bridges from chain to chain, but not a lot of things that just allow quick portability or quick interaction. So you have layer twos like Phantom, or I'm, Phantom's layer one, but it operates somewhat like a layer two on some of these swap platforms. You have Polkadot, um, which we've been really bullish on for a while, kind of filling this interoperability void there. And we're pretty hopeful that things keep going this way. I mean, I think they will. I think that there's a lot of money kind of driving these things in the direction that everyone sees. Um, and eventually, I mean, I personally see it like each chain is going to function as their own sort of nation state. It's fine if you want to reside in Ethereum. It's fine if you want to reside in Solana. Um, but at the same time, you can do things between the two. And I think that's the direction that we're heading. And so how do you think we get to a place where we get mainstream adoption of some of these blockchains, right? Because, you know, certainly ETH has started to get some of that, right? I mean, you know, a MetaMask is, is relatively easy to use, um, you know, and, you know, things like OpenSea have, you know, 80, 100,000 active users, right? I mean, there are, you know, there are real, there's real usage on Ethereum. I mean, I think 40% of Ethereum transactions are DeFi at this point. I think I read that today. I could be wrong. Uh, but you look at Solana, for example, and I'm super bullish Solana, I have a ton of it, but like Solid and connecting that to Serum is just not that great of a user experience right now. I don't think the average person is doing that yet. And so, you know, how do you, do, do you think we're headed in that direction? You know, how long do you think it's going to take? What do you think needs to be in place to enable that? Yeah, no, I mean, like mainstream adoption, quote unquote, for me is like the point that these things or I'm sorry, what you're using really gets abstracted away. Um, so I don't think a lot of people kind of give themselves enough credit in this space. Like, I, I, we're all super nerds. I mean, you log in, you're staking things to Wiren, you're farming things on Compound. Like, going to these native platforms and doing it yourself it, is a legitimate tech lift. I mean, you really have to kind of know what you're doing, understand how to interact with MetaMask. Uh, it's a large haul for a normal user. And I think it's also a large haul for people that are very akin to just traditional markets in general. Um, so I think when we get to this phase where a lot of the interaction is abstracted away, you and I don't even know what chain it's operating on. I mean, I do not have a strong understanding of what's happening under the hood when I go to a website, right? And I think most people don't. And I think it kind of looks the same way for blockchains in the future. I think once we kind of get away from this nitty gritty of interacting with things directly, and we start to see platforms kind of just abstract that away for the end user, uh, we kind of get to this world where the world or the word mainstream adoption uh, becomes a little bit more legitimate, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair point. I think we're seeing that with Top Shot and Flow. I think that's probably the first real example we've seen of that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think that makes sense. I mean, I'm on the I'm on the same same boat, right? I mean, I you know constantly we we interact with with you know obviously institutional customers, but also retail, and we just see you know just how hard it is to interact with some of these websites, some of these protocols, and you know I guess my my question for you is, you know, how for example could you have something built on ETH that becomes mainstream, 
you know, mainstream usable when the fees are so high, right? And if the developers have to eat the fees, how, how do you kind of accomplish that? Or do you think it's easier for, you know, products to be built on things like Flow or Solana or these other, you know, cheaper and faster blockchains? Yeah. So, I mean, like, I guess, I don't know if attack vector is the right word to use here, but a lot of the way that these other chains have kind of pulled users away from Ethereum or kind of attacked their user base is like, hey, we're faster, our fees are cheaper, uh, this is the place to be. And, and it's done well for now. Um, the fee game has gone on, um, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of things coming to Ethereum that are going to improve that, um, and maybe that goes away completely. I don't think everybody really knows how ETH2 is going to look in the wild. I don't think we've seen the final kind of vision around Layer 2s on top of Ethereum Layer 1. Um, I think that there are solutions that will kind of ease the burden as it is today. And I mean, it's a good point too, right? The fees are so high that somebody who just wants to play around with this stuff, it's like you go to Uniswap and sometimes it costs you $100 plus just to trade something. That's insane. That's a lot of money for just the regular user. I want to buy some Uniswap tokens on Uniswap DEX and I got to pay $100 just to get five of them. That's crazy. I'm almost paying as much gas as I am for the tokens themselves. Um, So right now, I mean, it's a bottleneck. I don't think it's a permanent wall. Um, And I think we're kind of in the very early stages of seeing how that kind of gets tackled. And so when when looking at investing in a layer one like Solana, you know, how do you go about assessing value? And, you know, how do you think about your investment thesis in in a layer one? And, you know, how value should accrue to to a layer one as opposed to, you know, an application built on top? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think for us, evaluating layer ones comes down to the developer base. Um, Electric Capital actually does these awesome quarterly reports, basically how many GitHub commits have come to a layer one over the last three months, how many new developers have come to the platform, how many total developers are on the platform. Um, And I think that's a really great cue just in terms of understanding what's on the horizon and kind of where the next like ecosystem is developing. Um, So we pay a lot of attention to the developer activity. I think we see a lot of that on Solana. Polkadot's been very popular. Cosmos has an unbelievable developer base, and I think it's very underappreciated at this point. Um, And then there's some other ones kind of on the periphery. AVAX is there. There's a good amount of things going on on Algorand at this point. Um, And I mean, I really think that's the cue for like where to look next. You want to see people building on this stuff. Because um, kind of the chain by itself, it's it's like a wasteland. Um, it's there, it does things, but what can you do with it? And so how do you think about evaluating where to invest, right? So you see that Algorand has a lot of developers and Avalanche and these other these other protocols, right? But what what tells you that this is the asset that I want to be in, or this is a fair valuation to enter this asset versus another one, right? Especially, you know, specifically on the layer one front. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it just comes down to like comparables. Um, You don't have a lot of cues to go off of this stuff. I mean, the cash flow narrative is coming into play with a lot of these DeFi platforms. Maybe I can DCF some of these things, but then you have to ask yourself again, does it really matter at this point? I mean, that stuff does matter, but it matters when everybody's doing it. If you're the only guy saying, hey, this should trade at book value and it's way undervalued, a lot of the time you're either not going to have enough capital to get it there yourself or it's just not going to play out the way that you're imagining. Um, so a lot of the way we look at things is like, hey, X lending platform is trading at certain fully diluted valuation. There's this much TVL there. Y lending platform kind of has the same things to offer. And for some reason, it's trading totally under that. Um, then you start to have, ask the questions, why? Are there not a lot of people using it? Is there something wrong with it? Was there a bug or a hack at some point that's kind of holding things down still? That's when you kind of dig into the things that give you your cue, uh, what really like catalyzes the movement in them, I think. And so a related question, and you know, it's the fundamental value podcast, you know, is, is uh, how do you define you know, fundamentals for digital assets? Like, are there such things as fundamentals? Does it depend on the token? Do they even matter? Uh, and, and do they matter in a bull market? Do they matter more in a bear market? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess like, so I'll just think like back to when it was kind of like Bitcoin standalone and like fundamentals at that point to me were like, how is the network hash rate doing? Is it increasing? 
has the number of unique addresses increased or decreased over some set of time. Um, you're really looking at kind of these network statistics and what's really happening at like the core protocol layer and what's going on there. Um, and kind of to your second part of the question there, when does it really matter? Um, I think it's quite obvious. It matters a lot more probably when we're in a bear market, right? Um, I mean, Bitcoin's it's 2018, Bitcoin's getting destroyed. The hash rate's still going up. Maybe the users stalled for a little bit, but the number of unique addresses going up, there's still people that are kind of looking into it. Um, and you want to just see those signs of life. Um, when things are really coming down, I think that's when it's time to evaluate how that core network health is actually performing. And so you talked earlier about, you know, two blockchains in particular, which were Solana and Polkadot as being interesting to, you know, both you and CMS. And so what specific projects that are built on top of both these blockchains uh, have you guys most excited, right? I mean, you know, can be can be something big like a serum or, you know, something which has maybe got a little bit less attention, like we just had uh, Rob on from Hero, uh, which, you know, I know we're both fans of Rob. So you know, curious <laughs> as to your take on, uh, you know, what has you excited? Yeah, definitely. And I have to say real quick, Rob probably has the best memes uh, in existence outside of CMS, that is. Um, but yeah, I mean, what gets us excited, like, we want to see things like kind of these core primitives um, being built. So I guess an example on Polkadot right now is uh, Akala. They're building out kind of staking derivatives, stable coin, lending, um, things that really are the core building blocks to do more of these novel projects on top of and kind of build out too. So I would say primarily, I think that was our first Polkadot investment. Um, and the team's been great there. We're really excited about what they're doing. Um, and that's kind of one in particular. And then I suppose over on Serum, it's been a lot more just trading focused. So obviously Serum's been a huge one. Radium came to the scene. That's been pretty interesting for us as well. Um, but I think right now we're probably most excited about a project called Mango Markets. Um, they're kind of doing margin lending um, and DEX combined. They've got a great platform. It's actually a very close friend of mine who I had met working at Falcon X. Um, and right now we're kind of doing as much as we can to help those guys bootstrap the platform, get some volume in play, help lend out assets for people to use on margin, uh, things of that nature. So I think Solana in particular, we're very focused on trading. Uh, I think on Polkadot, you're getting a little bit of everything and we're kind of looking for more of those primitives that come into play to really build this thing up. So on, on Polkadot with Akala, I mean, do you think they're going to get the first parachain, uh, you know, slot? <laughs> uh, what's your take there? Yeah, I mean, parachain auctions, it's almost like Ethereum uh, 2.0, right? Everybody's like, when is this happening? Is it going to happen? Um, we are very anxiously tracking the GitHub for updates, uh, trying to get as much information as we can there. But I think... Akala is probably one of the top contenders to be ushered into a slot out of the gate. Uh, we're very hopeful that that actually happens. Um, but I think at this point, there's been, I don't want to call them winners because there's obviously a lot of very attractive platforms that are going on on Polkadot. But I think Akala is definitely kind of in the winner bucket that has the backing to A, pay for a slot. And then B, I think they're probably one of the most developed projects in general. Um, those guys have all been ready to go for quite a while. Um, the platform on Testnet's been really nice. I think they'll probably be first in line. We'll see how the auctions actually play out. Um, but I would be surprised if they're not one of the first to the scene. How much do you think the first uh, slots are going to cost? Do you have any idea? <laughs> it's been crazy, man. Uh, when we first started investing in Polkadot, I'm trying to think like, I think the estimates were like five to $10 million, maybe around that range. And that's a lot of money at this point. I mean, we're hearing crazy yeah. stuff, 25, 30. I mean, maybe we even get the 50 million. That would be totally nuts. Um, but I really don't know. I mean, it seems like every single time we have the conversation, the number goes up by at least 5 million. And also, I mean, the time to launch <laughs> extends a little further too. But we're very hopeful that it'll happen uh, sooner rather than later. Um, and I think everyone will be surprised how expensive it is. I mean, do, do you think there's a... Sorry, go for it. Do you think there's a major advantage to... to I was going to say, do you think there's a major advantage to launching first? Like, is it worth $25 million to say that you're the first, you know, 
parachain and to get all that interest and that activity. I mean, because everybody kind of thinks it's a collar, right? I mean, that's kind of the conversation, right? But I guess it's kind of a see it when you, you know, you know, see it when you see it type thing. I mean, I wonder how much of a buy the rumor, sell the news type event this could be. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that there's a lot to be said for the first mover. Um, you're kind of there and you're quote unquote fully functional to some extent. Um, but at the same time, Polkadot offers a lot of options to interact with its core relay chain outside of having that parachain slot. Um, so one of the methods is something called the para thread. Um, in that regard, you're essentially paying for the transactions that you push through the relay chain as opposed to being directly connected to the relay chain itself. Um, I mean, you can connect to other parachains that are already connected there. So there's a lot of ways that these platforms can kind of be a core piece of this ecosystem without having a slot themselves. Um, and at this point, we kind of like to hear that teams have a backup plan. Because um, kind of like we were just saying, it's going to be very expensive. It's going to be very competitive. And if it's essential that you're connected to the Polkadot relay chain for your platform to be fully functional, it's also essential that you have some sort of plan to get there if you're not going to be able to get one of these first slots. So, I mean, I think it'll be beneficial to get there first. Do I think it'll be the end-all, be-all? Definitely not. I mean, this stuff's super early. We're going to see how it plays out. Um, and I think that picture will become a lot clearer maybe over the next three to six months. So you guys are also, you know, deep into farming. And so, you know, what, what are you guys, you know, currently interested in, you know, from a, from a farming perspective, uh, you know, either with your personal account or, or with CMS and, you know, with your personal account, you know, what's the shittiest farm that you've, uh, you've uh, gotten involved with? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, at CMS, we'll play in a little bit of everything. Um, over the summer, a little bit before I was there, I know these guys were in basically every food farm you can imagine. Uh, we were huge farmers in things like based. Uh, there was pasta. There was, man, yams. I mean, yams is still around, and they're doing interesting stuff. Um, but, I mean, I think pasta was, probably, yeah, pasta was probably the worst one for me personally. Um, I got in it very early. I actually sold one pasta for like 67Y USD from Yearn. And after that, it was just like instantly down. Like I have the screenshot because it was hilarious. I was like, <laughs> can't believe I sold this for 60 bucks. Um, but that one just like didn't work out so well. Um, and then on CMS, like... My, my worst one actually... Hassan got me into it. Was like, <laughs> were you in Glacier Swap? No, no, I wasn't. There was a point where there were so many food farms and different stuff. I was like, all right, enough's enough. I got to take a breather from this. Yeah, I was up, I was up like 600% in the first like 10 minutes. And then I lost, I'm, I'm down 99.999%, I think, at this point. You get the full kind of emotional picture all in an hour there. It's incredible. <laughs> And so you were saying with CMS, though, in terms of, you know, what, what CMS is in. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the platforms we're investing in today are, are DeFi focused. And that comes with the necessity for liquidity to some extent, especially when they're launching out of the gate. Um, so we find that kind of one of our core benefits here, and I think it makes it a little easier not having outside capital as well, is that we're able to stake to a lot of these platforms. We're able to sit in pools for a lot of these platforms. And that's really one of the things that we try to offer to teams. Um, so I think you can safely assume that if an investment that we have has some type of liquidity component to it, uh, we're in that pool. Um, I think lately it's been all over Twitter and people are giving us trouble about it. But like we've been very large farmers of Alchemix. Um, we love that platform. I think there's a lot to be said about these sort of grassroots DeFi projects that kind of pop up without really connection directly to like the institutional side of the industry or a lot of early backing. Um, and we find those to be really interesting. So we do as much as we can to kind of support that there. So I like Alchemix is a really big farm for us. Uh, Sushi was really big for us as well. We're still in a lot of the liquidity pools there. Um, and we try to make our assets productive. So, I mean, I, Dan posts to Twitter, like our PNL graph quite often, um, and we have kind of a dedicated book for that called Farm Fo uh, Farmfolio. So it, I, it's a large portion of what we do. Um, I think like daily farming, kind of harvesting the crops is, is an everyday task here. Um, and I think it's something we think that we're good at. Uh, we are early to it. We're going to keep is doing it. Is that CMS intern who's uh, the one farming the crops? <laughs> no, CMS intern, let's see, he starts full time in July. So he doesn't get access to these things yet, but he's definitely there. 
uh, pushing the marketing <laughs> front and gracing us all with some meme videos. And and so, what are your thoughts on on Binance Smart Chain and, and CDFI? Uh, do you think that's a long term play, or you know, just a lot of short term kind of you know farming and trading opportunities? Yeah. So I mean. Binance Smart Chain is interesting. A lot of people have trouble with the way that their validators are run. They say that they're too centralized. I think it was a lot larger of a point of contention when this stuff first hit. Um, but kind of going back to our earlier conversation, it's become too big to ignore. I'm not sure if it's still true at this very moment, but there was a point in time, if not still, Binance Smart Chain had the most stablecoin liquidity out of anything going on. Um, and there's ton of things going on on PancakeSwap. There's yield aggregators like Bunny. Um, I mean, these names trip me up still. But in terms of Binance Smart Chain, I mean, I think it's legitimized itself. It's something you can't ignore. I think it'll be around to stay. Maybe they need to change a couple things about how it operates. Um, and in terms of CDFI, like we have the Coinbases and the Binances of the world today. Um, but I think kind of as we move towards the future, you start to see these ent or centralized entities dissolve a little bit. Um, it's a little less of centralized custody, a little less of centralized trading. Maybe they're casting some of what they do out to a lending platform. Maybe they're building their own decentralized lending platform. I think you start to see the mesh um, kind of become a little less to recognize between what's DeFi and what's a centralized exchange. I think that's where we're headed. I don't think CDFI is something to shy away from. I think it makes a lot more users comfortable with using something. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of my thoughts of where we're at there. And so, you know, we're obviously very deep into a bull market. And so what are the, you know, and I, I guess we kind of hit on this a little bit, you know, with investing in a bull market and having, you know, uh, you know, basically to make decisions in like, a second as to whether or not you want to be part of a round and missing out on things. But, you know, what are the biggest, you know, challenges aside from that with, you know, both trading and investing in a bull market? And, you know, where do you think we are at this stage? And, you know, have you personally taken any chips on the off the table, right? Is, you know, or it, it, has CMS decided to move into a cash position or, or thinking about it at this point? Or are you guys still, you know, like number only goes up at this point? <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, I guess me personally, um, I, I've lived off of this stuff for the better part of 10 years at this point. Um, so for me, it's like, I'm in Bitcoin, but is it something I'm like speculating on? Well, not really. It's like my core, uh, like monetary base. Like I spend out of my Bitcoin holdings. I pay for, like I hold very little cash. I basically pay my bills and a little bit of the Bitcoin I'm holding each month, things like that. So, I mean, chips off the table, yeah, in some regards, maybe you start to scale down some of these crazier alts. Um, maybe you start to scale down the sizes of your positioning. Um, but really, I, I think more than anything, it's kind of like a game of survival. Uh, you want to be able to live to see the next day. Uh, and we're conscious of that at CMS. I mean, I think we kind of adhere to the same guidelines here. Maybe a little less shitcoining, a little more focus on bigger projects, a little more positioning in Bitcoin and Ethereum versus some of these more exoteric names that are just coming to the scene. Um, I don't think we've really reduced our exposure. Uh, we denominate kind of everything in Bitcoin. So it's really not a matter of like, hey, we got to get into cash. Um, it's more just a matter of like, hey, how crazy are we getting with the things that we're actually investing in? And so, you know, with that said, and I think on a related note is, is how deep in, in alt season are we? Um, how much more juice do you think is potentially left in the tank? And what do you think a market correction looks like, you know, versus a correction, you know, like we had back in 2017 or in 2014 or in 2012 or some of these other corrections that you've lived through? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it would be wrong to say that, that we're not very deep into this thing. I mean, I think the picture is pretty clear on that point. Um, as far as how long it goes, I, every cycle I've lived through to this point, the prices where things finally end are so far beyond kind of the realm of imagination that I don't quite know that they're there yet. I think a lot of people could envision a $50,000 Bitcoin. I think $3,000 Ethereum was a little harder for people to realize. Um, but that being said, I don't think we're at the point where it's just like, hey, we are so astronomically high. I cannot believe what's going on. And, and like, I don't think it ends. Tomorrow, maybe we're approaching that point. 
maybe some alts wheels start to fall off. Uh, I don't know. But I guess like in terms of things coming to an end, like the analogy I like to use a lot is it's like, it's like the event horizon of a black hole. Uh, you don't really know it's over until you've passed that event horizon and, and it's been months and things are down and you're like, Hey, maybe we are in a bear market at this point. I mean, we've had some pretty gnarly corrections along the way here. Uh, and things have just kind of built themselves back up and kept going up. Uh, maybe the idea of this crazy super cycle really is in play where we just kind of keep pushing along up, up, up with crazy corrections along the way. Um, I think that's a little bit more realistic on Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, kind of like I mentioned earlier, I would be surprised to see something like 70 to 80% drops in these things. I just, with the amount of money that's in these markets at this point, it's very hard to move things to that extent. Um, I guess past the retail liquidations, like you get $8 billion getting liquidated on Bybit and that kills things for a while. Um, in terms of the altcoins, I mean... For DeFi in particular, this is this is like the first wave of the hype cycle. Um, there's a lot of people that were early to these things. There's a lot of people that are playing in things that are new. Um, and I think it gets a little bit scarier to hold on when things go down. Um, and, and for those, it, those wouldn't surprise me if we see some crazy 50, 60, 70% drops. I guarantee you there will be names that you may never hear of again at the end of this bull cycle. Um, I mean, I don't think everything goes to zero, but I think it's going to be a lot scarier across kind of the esoteric alt space um, than it will be for the larger names. And so, you know, two two final questions. The first is, you know, what is what is an asset people are sleeping on? You know, what you know either you know that CMS is holding or in your personal account. Uh, you know, what's the thing that has you really excited, but you know, you think the rest of the market is missing. Yeah, so I think a very big piece of traditional markets and DeFi in general is, is this idea of kind of fixed rate lending. Um, in the traditional world, fixed income is an absolutely massive market. It's the stuff people kind of fall back on when they don't want to be in equities. Maybe you want to make your 3 4 5% a year, if that's even available today. Um, but I think a lot of these kind of fixed rate lending platforms and tranche debt platforms um, are things that people are kind of sleeping on. I think as these become more mainstream assets and as DeFi becomes more mainstream in general, fixed rate lending is going to be something that kind of ties itself into these protocols in one form or another and kind of a place where maybe people go to seek some safety. Like, hey, I'm done 100x levering Matic on FTX. Um, I'm just going to go buy a bond on MPH and, and get my, I don't know, 6 to 12% yield. Or I'm going to go over to Saffron Finance and I'm going to sit in one of the, the tranche debt pools and I'm going to sit in double A pool. I'm going to be a little safer than some of the stuff. Maybe I'm sitting in the B and I'm taking on more risk. Um, Barnbridge is another one that I'm pretty excited about. They're not quite as sexy as some of this crazy stuff, uh, but I think they're essential. And I think they're a massive market that's been barely touched at this point. And so, you know, my last question is, you know, if you had to, you know, move jobs and actually join a token issuer, uh, you know, as part of the team, what token issuer would you choose to join and why? Uh, I don't know, man. I, I'm, I'm going to the grave with CMS, I think, but uh, that's a tough one. I mean, I or think if you could be an advisor to any token project, what would it be? Let's change the question. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I would want to, man, I, I don't know, like specifically, like it would obviously be something DeFi centric. Um, I think for me, just kind of like given my trading background, things like that, probably something more on the trading side. Like Mango would be a great team to, to be a part of. Uh, they're friends. I think they're doing really interesting stuff. I think they have a really ambitious project in mind. Um, but like for me, when I pick tokens, I like like the craziest stuff, the things that people think like this this won't happen. Um, so I guess I would kind of just max risk on in terms of just – weirdness um but i can't come up with like something specifically like i really don't have any idea you're going full-time chicken kebab finance yeah <laughs> there you go all right well i i really appreciate your time this was this was great you know love chatting you know markets and DeFi and uh you know l1s and so 
really appreciate you having you on. You know, would love to have you on again in the future. Uh, and so the last thing is, is where can people find you online? I'll obviously link it in the description, but where, where can people follow you and, and, and CMS? Yeah, so I mean, I'm sure everybody knows the CMS Twitter account at this point. Uh, my handle on Twitter is swerve with a U, uh, underscore, underscore, swerve, underscore, underscore. It's a picture of a fractal plant. Uh, I'll drop you the link after. Uh, but that's kind of yeah, where I reside. I'm not really out in the wilderness too much other than Twitter. All right. Well, I really appreciate having you on and, and great chatting. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It's been a lot of fun.